where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. I'll be the first to admit that I love a little bit of Roundup in my life. Roundup in my life. Here now is your host. He is quite a character. His name is Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jeff. Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Roundup Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Eager, coming to you from a bend, Oregon, that is ensconced in something called ice fog. Probably most people in the Pacific Northwest are familiar with what that is. It's We have what's called an inversion layer, which means it's, it's cloudy and foggy and cold here at about 3,600 feet of elevation. In Bend, if you were to go up to the mountains, it would be clear and a lot warmer. Probably the earliest in the year I recall seeing it happen. Usually it's kind of a January, February phenomenon. I assume that it is the result of climate change, as are all weather phenomenon these days, or phenomena these days. We've got an exciting uh episode for you here today, going to kind of recap the political lay of the land nationally and in Oregon now that almost all the elections are resolved from the 2022 midterms. Have some interesting things to go over there. I want to talk about the way the media is covering governor-elect Tina Kotek in a way that indicates that they're headed down the same rabbit hole that they've been headed in recent recent decades, unfortunately. And then a new a new probably recurring segment called Headlines from the Apocalypse, which are particularly alarming, distressing, bizarre headlines that originate from our the biggest city in the state of Oregon, that being Portland, the city of roses, and weird headlines, as it turns out. I've been doing this just kind of housekeeping thing here. I've been doing this podcast for a number of months, kind of off and on. It's been predominantly behind the paywall, so accessible only to paid Roundup subscribers. And thank you to all paid Roundup subscribers. This one I'm going to make available to all subscribers to the Oregon Roundup. Let people kind of hear what it is. I, I'm t- toying around with some ideas about making all the podcast episodes, or at least most of them, available to all subscribers and then adding in a couple different perks for paid folks. I think that as an ardent podcast listener, I think that podcasts are a, a good entry point to content and I'd like to make this podcast more widely available and see how that works out maybe bring some more people into the Roundup orbit and then find some other fun stuff to do for the people who are generous enough to choose to pay to be an extra special member of the community. With all that, let's get going. The results of the 2022 midterms are, for the most part, set. Republicans have taken control or will have taken control of the U.S. House of Representatives by, I believe, the the most recent tally uh, being three votes. That with the assistance of Lori Chavez-Dreamer, who, of course, won Oregon's fifth congressional district, which I sit in right now. That's a very narrow majority. Three seats in a 435-seat elected body is vanishingly small, which means that 
the ability of the Republican leadership in the House to get significant legislation passed will be will be limited because they can't afford to lose any of their voters, almost any of their members, rather, on any particular vote and still hope to get something passed. The downside of that is that kind of to the degree that the House Republicans would like to use their new majority to signal these are the types of policies that we'd like to enact on behalf of the American people to tackle inflation, education, and all the other kind of gas prices, all the other stuff that a lot of voters are concerned about and that Republicans ran on in 2022 to varying degrees of success. That's going to be limited and difficult for incoming Speaker Kevin McCarthy to effectuate. Not to say they won't. I'm sure they can get some of that stuff through, but it's going to be a a tight wire act for House leadership to get that done. Right out of the chute here, kind of the first big headline out of what the new majority Republicans are planning to do isn't maybe the best messaging. The House Oversight Committee is saying that they are going to pursue an investigation of the Hunter Biden slash Joe Biden laptop and associated associated issues, which is, in my mind, a, a very legitimate investigation, if for no other reason than that there there remains a question as to whether at least the president's son and perhaps the president himself and other members of his family benefited financially from arrangements with companies associated with foreign governments in places like China. We don't know whether that's the case. Well, we do know that Hunter Biden benefited from those arrangements. We don't know whether Joe Biden did. And with Joe Biden serving as president and the Department of Justice theoretically in charge of investigating as a criminal matter, Hunter Biden's involvement in these things. And if there is any Joe Biden involvement, that involvement, certainly it it screams for congressional oversight because there's an obvious conflict of interest there, given that the DOJ, everyone in the DOJ works for Joe Biden, indirectly at least. So it's a legitimate thing to investigate. It's just not the kind of thing you necessarily want to kick off your new majority with, because while investigating Hunter and Joe Biden's alleged kind of financial dealings appeals to kind of the the very involved base Republicans who have been following that story. Most Americans don't know anything about it, or if they do, they don't really care. There's a reason why Republicans in 22 ran predominantly on inflation and gas prices and all the other kind of issues, the kind of kitchen table issues that Americans face today. It's because that's what that's what they care about. So you'd like to see the new majority coming out with some more policies initially addressing those things. And I'm sure they're working on that stuff, too. But it, it just this the way this was rolled out kind of indicates the problems that legislative majorities have in messaging and why the presidency is so much more effective as a messaging platform than a legislative body. Because a legislative body, by definition, includes a lot of different people. And the leadership's ability to prevent members from kind of going off on their own and announcing that they're going to do XYZ thing is is limited, particularly when your majority is so small. So I think that's what you're seeing here is that the House Oversight Committee is is planning to do this stuff on Hunter Biden. 
and they went out and announced it and it grabbed a bunch of headlines because of the nature of the subject matter and that's kind of gotten first page coverage in advance of kind of the more substantive policy stuff that is probably more in line with what Americans are concerned about. So that's the House. Republicans with the narrow majority in the Senate. The Democrats will have a narrow majority as they do currently, although they may increase by one. As it stands right now, Democrats hold 50 seats in the U.S. Senate, which no matter what happens in the Georgia runoff next month is enough for them to to control the body because Vice President Kamala Harris would break any ties, even if Herschel Walker beats Raphael Warnock in the runoff in Georgia next month. If Warnock wins that runoff, then the Democrats will have an outright 51 to 49 majority in the Senate and continue to control the chamber either way. That's essentially keeping with the status quo. So the the change in D.C. on Capitol Hill is that Republicans will have a small majority in the House, giving them control of that body. And the first time they've had control of any of the elected levers of power in Washington, D.C. since 2021. Shortly after the midterm election, really exactly a week after the midterm election, this past Tuesday, Donald Trump kind of seized the headlines again by announcing that he was going to run for president in 2024. He had, of course, uh, signaled that prior to the midterm elections that he would be announcing this after the midterm elections, and he he went ahead and and did announce that he's he's running for president. For those of you who read the kind of post-election sob fest that I wrote in the roundup, I do think that probably at the margins, Trump's kind of signaling that he was going to run for the presidency again, and announcing that before the midterms probably had an impact on on the outcome of the those midterm elections and in some cases we know from exit polling and and other data that trump was exceedingly unpopular as was joe biden among people who were voting in the midterm elections and putting himself front and center just before the midterm elections surely did not help candidates across the country, Republican candidates across the country in purplish districts and states, or certainly blue-leaning or solid blue states like Oregon. And the president, former president, did indeed carry through on his forecast that he would run for the presidency. So now we have what I believe to be the earliest announcement for president in our history. We have almost exactly two years until people actually will be casting ballots in the general election in 2024. Politics are going to be dominated for the next two years by the question of who's going to be president of the United States. Republican politics for at least the next year and a half to 20 months will be dominated by the question of who the Republican nominee will be. And Trump's early entry into the into the race guarantees that really that's on right now. From a practical standpoint, the party is probably going to be consumed with that question between now and 2024. And it's hard to imagine that most of the issues that Republicans deal with, at least at the federal level, won't have kind of overhanging it this question of which potential Republican presidential nominee, be it Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or someone else, benefits from a policy or or approves of a policy or opposes a policy. So from my standpoint, going to be unfortunate because 
I think there's a lot more to politics than presidential politics. And frankly, I'm tired of Donald Trump being front and center in the stuff that our party, my party, is focused on. But I think that is going to be the likely plight of Republicans and to a lesser degree, the nation between now and 2024. Of course, the Democrats have their own kind of intrigue with the question of whether Joe Biden is going to run or not. I think that there will be significant pressure on him not to run, although he has certainly gained himself some leeway by his party performing well above expectations in the midterm elections. So welcome to 2024. You thought that we were done with elections last week, but you were wrong. Elections are never done. So let that be a lesson to all of us. Moving back to Oregon now, of course, kind of the lay of the land here is that Tina Kotek won the governorship. More on that in a moment. The Willamette Week ran an article today, today being Thursday, I believe. Or no, it was yesterday, Wednesday, with the title, With Great Power Comes Great Responsibility for Tina Kotek, Oregon's Next Governor. Few of Kotek, And then the subtitle, Few of Kotek's predecessors have inherited a bigger mess or done so with less of a public mandate. And the headlines, so far as it is, isn't offensive. What is offensive, and I'll include this in the show notes, or not offensive, just weird, is the the picture that accompanies the article. And the article, you know, talks about the challenges that Oregon faces and the fact that Kotek had a close race and certainly didn't earn a majority of the votes cast in that election and therefore doesn't really have a mandate. But this image, it's a cartoon image, and it plays off the fact that apparently Tina Kotek is a big fan of Marvel Comics and or Marvel Comic-based movies. I'm not sure which, or maybe it's both, but this image has her huge behind the skyline of Portland and Mount Hood wearing a a shirt fashioned after the flag of the city of Portland underneath a business suit holding up her left hand and grasping a flag of the state of Oregon triumphantly behind the words Captain Kotek with a flock of ducks flying over her and the state symbol of the beaver. Not sure if she's supposed to be holding that up as though it's a shield, but it is a triumphant image and a striking one and strikingly distinct from the relatively balanced headline and then the content of of the story. And I think that, that that image is, frankly, more telling than the actual substance of the article in the sense that I think that the progressive powers that be in the state view Kotek's victory as, you know, a vindication of the direction of the state, that Kotek and her greater energy with which she will pursue progressive policies relative to Kate Brown is is poised to 
dominate Oregon politics and somehow fix the same problems that Kate Brown wasn't able to fix and in fact made worse, and that Tina Kotek herself as Speaker of the House was unable to fix and in fact made worse. And it's just a kind of sickening image, to be honest with you, that a publication that holds itself out to be, you know, a news source would depict a newly elected governor in this way as though a governor is going to sweep in and save everything. I would think the same thing if it was Drazen had won, and this is almost laughably unrealistic, but if Willamette Week had depicted her in the same way. The fact is, it's important who we elect to these positions, but these politicians are not are not capable of fixing all of our problems. At best, we can hope that they don't create more problems. And I think Kotek's record, having been at the very top ends of leadership in the state of Oregon, demonstrates that if she had any great ideas about how to fix our problems with homelessness and cost of living and housing, she probably would have pursued that instead of doing things like pursuing statutes, which she took great pride in passing, actually making it harder for cities to close down homeless camps, even when there's shelter capacity that would be safer for those folks to go into. So it's just an image that is almost laughable in its grandiosity and indicative, I think, of what is soon to come. Powers of B in Oregon just see this as we're going to double down on what we've been doing and Tina Kotek, the great progressive savior, Part two, after Kate Brown, is the one that will lead us to victory. There will be no self-evaluation of some of the problems of the policies that have been enacted by Tina Kotek and her allies in recent years, in spite of the fact that those policies or the, the spokesperson for those policies received Uh, significantly less than a majority of the votes in Oregon's gubernatorial election. In fact, if if there's any kind of policy mandate that comes out of the the gubernatorial race this year, it is that, you know, nearly two-thirds of the elect, well, over half of the electorate actually wanted a new direction policy-wise, that there were two candidates who were criticizing the record of Kate Brown and Tina Kotek, And between those two candidates, they would have handily beat Tina Kotek, who was the exemplar of continuing the policies that we've we've had for some time in this state. So once again, I'll put that image in the in the show notes so that you can enjoy it or get sick on it as you're as you choose. And finally, to wrap up today's episode, I want to as I scroll through Twitter or read the newspaper it's not uncommon, and you, you might be in the same place, that you come across a headline about something that's happened in Portland that just seems otherworldly and apocalyptic. So here's one from today in the Oregonian or Oregon Live. Headline, Sword Death of Portland Landlord in Slasher Mask Ruled Self-Defense. All right sword, death, and a slasher mask. Landlord was wearing the slasher mask, apparently, and he was killed with a sword. Tragic situation, and don't want to make light of it, but 
I think it bears some of the details that I'll read to you right now. By the time Robert Bainter decided to move out of the four-bedroom Victorian house he shared in the Elliott neighborhood in early September, the 31-year-old tenant said he felt certain the landlord would eventually do something terrible. For weeks, the landlord, Justin Valdivia, had been harassing Bainter and entered the, the home at 4 a.m. without permission. People were on edge and staying up all night to make sure he wasn't coming into the house, quote, end quote, Bainter said. One of the roommates left the house because of the harassment, alleged harassment of the landlord. And within the month, the landlord would become Portland's 69th homicide victim, presumably 69th of 2022, killed after entering the house around 1 a.m. while wearing a slasher film mask and carrying a hammer and a pellet gun painted black to look like a firearm, which he pointed at Wallace. Afraid for his life, Wallace charged Valdivia and stabbed him in the chest with a sword he had borrowed for protection, police and prosecutors later said. The cops and the DA determined he, the tenant had op- operated in self-defense. Bainter, who's the landlord, who or pardon me, the tenant, who works as a mental health worker, said he and a roommate called 911 that evening to report the incident, and a dispatcher told them to contact the non-emergency number. An operator told them that Valdivia had already called to accuse Bainter of threatening him with a knife, not the other way around. And there was an eviction notice. Worried for his safety, Bainter, <laughs> Bainter decided to move out early. Before he left... Mind you, this is a mental health counselor. Before he left, he set up a, quote, Goonies-style booby trap, end quote, a cup of silverware and loose change balanced on planks of wood leaned against the back door to alert other tenants if Valdivia tried to enter the house again. Valdivia became angry when he learned that Wallace was sleeping in the living room, Bainter said, and so, anyway, the next thing that happens is Valdivia, the, the landlord, comes in in a slasher mask and pellet gun painted black, and the tenant stabs him with a sword that he borrowed for self-protection, which is completely normal. I think what makes this particularly Portland-esque is that both parties here are pretty clearly not with it and acting extremely oddly. The fact that the tenant is a mental health counselor add some extra flavor to it. Very sorry for the death of the landlord and sorry that his family went through that. But there are some of these things that happen up there in Portland that I really truly believe could not and would not happen anywhere else. And my plan is going forward to kind of share some of these odd stories with you, odd and tragic stories with you that come from the Rose City. That's all I've got today. Tune in soon for another episode of the Oregon Roundup. Check your email box for that. And also check your email box for the newsletter. I'll have more of that stuff coming out. Hope you have a good weekend. You'll hear from me soon. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at oregonroundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at oregonroundup.substack.com.